He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The city of Ephesus was a seaside port on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. A little more than 300 miles to the east was Ankara, today the nation's capital city. In Ankara stood the most famous Augustium, a temple of worship for Rome's first emperor, Caesar Augustus. It was built around 25 AD. It would have been known to the uh, recipients of our letter here. On both walls of the Augustium in this little temple in Latin and Greek was inscribed a copy of the deeds of the divine Augustus. This was a 35-paragraph testimony that Caesar wrote about himself before his death. You can read it online. It begins with this line, a copy below of the deeds of the divine Augustus by which he subjected the whole wide earth. Wow. He goes on to list the money he spent, the wars he won, the gifts he gave, the temples he built, the titles he enjoyed. The emperor cult of Rome was one of many religions in first century Asia Minor, but it was a very important religion to the Roman Empire. It was part of the government's unification of this vast empire full of all sorts of cultures and all sorts of traditions and all sorts of places. They could work on that unification, that Pax Romana, by imposing the emperor cult. If they had one thing in common, it was, well, we can all worship the emperor. Now, here you are, a Gentile Ephesian. For many years, probably your whole life, the emperor cult has been part of your life, your your regular schedule, your regular culture, the things that happened uh, around you. Maybe you had also joined a mystery religion or even dabbled in sorcery, which was so prevalent in your city. At some point, someone shared the good news of Jesus Christ with you. You believed and were born again. And suddenly, you were a monotheist. Nobody around you was a monotheist. Everyone else in your city, everyone else in your neighborhood, maybe everyone else under your roof, well, they were polytheists, and they thought it was weird that you were a monotheist. At church one Sunday night, you hear a letter from the Jewish Christian who founded your local fellowship five or eight years ago, an apostle who speaks with authority and finality to you about what Christianity is all about. In this letter, Paul tells you about just how great the one true God is and how great the salvation which flows from God's love and grace is. But as Paul explains these things, you start to realize very quickly that the fundamental truths of life are being rewritten in your mind. Uh, As I've been saying again and again in these studies, we can't comprehend a world that hasn't been impacted and saturated and changed by Christianity, but these are brand new ideas for these Ephesian believers. Uh, Things like there is one God, not many gods. Things like there is a coming kingdom that Christians have a place in. 
that there is an order, a heavenly order when it comes to family, employment, citizenship. And that order is very different than what the world around you practices, even at a basic level. While Paul's letter is incredibly good news, as we find, and we've been seeing in this opening chapter, Paul is so excited to tell him just how good the good news is. We have to recognize that it was also incredibly countercultural. Eventually, these truths of Christianity, which were foundational and which were so basic and, 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 and were so, so uh, bottom level from which life was going to be built, well, these ideas were not just going to be considered countercultural, they were going to be considered criminal by the unbelieving world. In fact, in places they already were considered criminal. In fact, in Ephesus, your own city, there had been a major riot because of these ideas. And the people who were writing said, these Christians, these ideas are going to destroy our society. Listening to Paul explain that Caesar is not God, that Rome is not the ultimate kingdom, uh, that there are all these other things that are actually true, well, you might realize just how radical Christianity was. In fact, you'd probably start piecing together why Paul was in jail as he wrote you this letter, why Christians were sometimes seen as seditious traitors. That's a word that's getting thrown around a lot today, right? Sedition. Well, Christians were starting to be seen as seditious, as traitors, as people to be expunged, ideas which were so unacceptable to culture that they needed to be quieted. These were incredibly encouraging words, But these were ideas that shook your old Gentile understanding to its core. Everything you thought you believed about reality, about the supernatural world, about the future, about the purpose of life, none of that was true. And this apostle was writing to you to explain to you what the truth was. The good news is that Christians didn't have to be afraid, and Paul's going to explain to them that even though there is difficulty, even though there is a war going on between Uh, the unbelieving world and and heaven and that we have a place to fight in this war. Okay, wow, how how literal do you mean that, right? These are ideas that they would have to wrestle through. But even though that that is true, Christians didn't have to be afraid because Paul explained to them, God is on your side. God has given you power. He's going to equip you with everything that you need. You're going to have armor that you put on. You're going to be knit together into a living organism with other Christians. You're not out there on your own. It's a lot of good news. And most of all, in this section, Paul you know, would encourage them with the fact that they don't have to be afraid because God has limitless power. And that's power that he has presented to his people, you Christians, so that you and we can grow and strengthen as we walk with the Lord. Paul's great desire was that these believers would become more and more spiritually enlightened, he said last time, to understand the hope of their salvation, the power of God on their behalf, the wealth of their inheritance from the Lord. So we pick back up in verse 20 as he's continuing this thought. If you're using the New King James Version, you'll see that it's mid-sentence, which is kind of unusual, right? And that's because in the Greek, verses 15 through 23 are all one long sentence. Verses 3 through 14, one sentence. 15 through 23, one sentence. Paul's long-winded in this opening. And so because of that, translators have to make a bunch of choices about punctuation and where to break up the sentences in order to ease our understanding in our our reading in English. So if you're wondering why we're mid-sentence, that's why. 
Paul's in a section where he's talking about the exceeding greatness of God's power toward those who believe. And he picks up in verse 20. God, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event in human history. Uh, And we can argue, well, is the cross more important? Is the virgin birth more important? Uh, I think we can go on record and say that it's the resurrection is the most important because Paul would tell the Corinthians very specifically, he says, listen, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. He's like, so even if Jesus was virgin born and even if he died on a cross, if he's not raised, your faith is worthless. He says, and he says, and we are of all people in all the world, the most to be pitied if Christ hasn't raised from the dead. R. Kent Hughes writes, the cross is the highest display of God's love. The resurrection is the ultimate display of his power, of his power. The best news is that this display of God's power through the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not a one-time display. It wasn't an isolated one-time event. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection power of God. And Paul said it plainly. He said, listen, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Christ, the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so as we're flowing through chapter one, he's talking about if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you've received the salvation and all of the blessings and all of the benefits that come along with that. And part of that, maybe the most significant part, is the resurrection power that was applied to Jesus Christ is also going to be applied to you because you belong to Christ. The resurrection was God exercising his immeasurably great power. And that power is also exercised for us. Not only when we come out of the grave one day, which we will, but Paul's going to explain that the resurrection power, so immeasurably great, so mighty, so fantastic, is available for us in the present. Ephesians 3.20 speaks of God's power, and he says, God's power that works in us. And it's the same word Paul using for works as we see here for exercise. It's all God's power, the power that exercised in the, in the raising of Jesus from the dead is the power that is working in you as a Christian and as part of the church. God's power, according to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, is meant to energize our life. The word that he's using is the word that we get the word energy from. It's meant to energize us, to bring spiritual life where there was deadness. Today, if you think about power and what power, and power is kind of a concept, right? In, in, and I think in the terms of energy power. And what things come along with uh, the power that flows through the copper wires in our homes, right? We think of how it brings energy, it brings heat, it brings electromagnetism, it sometimes brings light, right? It brings these, these things with it. God's power is bringing all sorts of things with it. And this is what Paul's been talking about and will continue to talk about in this letter. It brings life, it brings grace, it brings love, it brings endurance for suffering, it brings glory, it brings honor, it brings strength. As we are energized by it, the byproducts of God's power or the operation of God's power are all of these thriving, growing, um, um, strengthening fruits of God's spirit and of God's working in us. And Paul also explains that Christ was seated at God's right hand in the heavens when he was raised from the dead. When Jesus came out of the grave, 
He didn't come out in weakness. He came out in absolute power. Sometimes in popular culture, movies, TV, we see a character comes back from the dead. I was thinking about this and trying to list some in my mind. Number one, usually it's the bad guys that come back from the dead. Have you noticed this? You got Voldemort and Palpatine and all of these. They're always coming back from the dead. But most often in a movie, if a character comes back from the dead, do they come back in strength? You can't count the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because that's a book and it was written by a Christian and he's picturing Jesus, right? But mostly they come back in weakness, right? Uh, In The Revenant. I haven't seen The Revenant. I saw the trailer and that was enough, right? But in The Revenant, and the word revenant means someone who comes back, especially from the dead. But I gather from the trailer that Leonardo DiCaprio does not come back in strength from his scrape with death as a bear like ate him, right? Uh, or you think of, uh, let's go to happier thoughts. Think of Wesley and the Princess Bride, one of the rare good characters that comes back from the dead. Of course, he was only mostly dead. He doesn't come back in strength, right? He's completely weak. He's completely immobile. He can only barely move his thumb. He has to be carried in and through the third act of the movie until finally he has barely enough strength to just stand up, right? He doesn't come back in strength. He comes back in weakness. Or you think of uh, the, the end of the terrible new trilogy of Star Wars movies. Emperor Palpatine, he's back from the dead, right? Uh, there's not much of him left in The Rise of Skywalker. He's like all melted and his eyes are weird and he's like, he's gross, Right? He's not back in strength. And those bad guys who are finally come back, they're always just overcome at the end of the movie, right? Christ came out of the grave in absolute power, in glory, in strength. And then he ascended from earth to the right hand of God, God the Father, where he will rule and reign forever in a position of ultimate strength, ultimate rule, ultimate power, ultimate ability. Now this verse has revealed some significant truths already. One of the most important is the fact that there is indeed a world beyond this one. So imagine again that you're a Gentile, you came out of paganism, all kinds of weird religions. On the one hand, you're told and kind of forced into this Roman emperor cult. You kind of have to pretend Caesar's a god. You don't think he's a god. But you kind of have to pretend he is and there's all of this lore around him. Did you know that they said that... um, Uh, Caesar Augustus was also miraculously born. There's all of these weird like stories and myths around him. You probably come out of some kind of weird uh, Asia Minor uh, pagan religion. Who knows what you're doing? You're probably like drinking goat's blood on, on during the winter solstice, right? You might even be involved with a mystery religion. A lot of people were. Uh, they were doing weird, perverted, evil stuff. Um, there's all this stuff going on. And so you have all of these competing ideas about who's a God, what kind of power is available to you, what is true, what is not true. And Paul says, hey, listen, there is an unseen realm. There is an after this life. There is heaven. There is eternity. It is populated by spiritual beings. And he's going to talk about them later in the letter. But he, he's explaining to you, hey, there is another world. And you're going to spend eternity in the next world. This life feels very, um, feels very real and feels very difficult at times. But this life is absolutely nothing in comparison to the eternity that is waiting for us, right? 
And so that is a foundational, like mind-blowing truth if we stop to just remind ourselves that there is another world and we are headed toward another world and we're not going to spend 60, 70, 80, or 90 years there. We're going to spend eternity there and you can act accordingly based off of that knowledge. Sometimes you hear people, it's popular right now for celebrities or different people, um, tech people, they debate over whether they think we're in the matrix. And their idea is, are we in a computer simulation? And people discuss this seriously. Uh, Everybody's, uh, everybody, popular culture's uh, favorite scientist right now, Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? Everybody wants to talk about uh, NDT, right? I watched a video today of him trying to explain to someone that they said, are we living in a simulation? And this was his serious response. He said, listen, if you were in the Mario Brothers video game, you would think there are certain rules of physics. And if you were a scientist who lived in the Mushroom Kingdom, you would think that that was all real and you would do all of your research and try to figure stuff out. And then he was serious. He said that there's really no difference when it comes to knowing truth between our world and us being a scientist in the Mushroom Kingdom in the Mario Brothers video game. And he is supposed to be an expert on what is real and what is true. People look to him and people like him for answers about science. And what is science supposed to be? A study of what is real, a study of reality, a study of truth. And he is serious. He's saying it doesn't matter And there's no way for you to know if we're in a simulation. And there's probably a very good chance. He says at the end, he's one of these guys, there's just a multiverse, right? And that there's a really, what are the odds that we're not in a simulation? And it doesn't matter if we are in a simulation or not because you can't know it, and but we are in a simulation. And people are like, oh, this guy's telling us truth, right? These are fundamental, important issues. Do you think that your life is different if you are Mario or if you are created in the image of the one true God and that you have eternal value and you have an eternal purpose for your life and you're going to live in eternity in the heavenly realm with the creator of heaven and earth, I'd say there's a difference. I'd say those fundamental truths make a difference in a person's life. And so it matters whether this stuff is true or not. And so Paul is coming along and saying, hey, you may have heard that Caesar is God. You may have heard X, Y, and Z. I'm telling you the fundamental truth. There's one true God... He lives outside of time and space, and you're going to live with him too one day if you are in Christ. As a first century Ephesian, you were told Caesar is God, or Diana is God, or Nehushtan is God, and that there are all these geographical deities that hang out in the hills or hang out in the valleys, and that you can control otherworldly powers through magic and sorcery. And Paul cuts through all of that. All of those follies, all of those lies. And he says, listen, there is one God. He has revealed himself. He is in charge. He has extended an invitation for you to join his family. There is a supernatural realm. And this life on earth leads to the next one. And here are the proofs so that you can know that all of this is true. And here's how you can benefit from these truths and these realities today as you live out a life in this temporal world getting ready for the next life. As Paul lays out these things, we learn that as Christians, we live in a tension between this world and the next. Bible commentators will often refer to it as the now and the not yet, right? For example, we see it here. Christ 
has been seated in his position of rule and authority, right? Christ is king. And yet as we read about Christ's kingdom, the literal millennial kingdom where he rules from Jerusalem, we look and we say, well, that's not happening. We're not in the kingdom now. The lion isn't laying down with the lamb. Righteousness isn't ruling all over the earth. And so there is, so it is true, Christ is seated on the throne at the right hand of God, and yet there's also a not yet aspect to it. There's still more to come in the fulfillment of these truths. And the tension grows even greater for us as individuals when we get to chapter two of this letter and, and we read this or we hear from Paul this, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Past tense, it's done. He says, you've been raised with Christ Jesus. And you're like, really? Because my knee hurts an awful lot, right? Because I've got these problems. I've got these difficulties. I've got these issues that, that seem to plague this life, right? And so on the one hand, it is now, it is true, God says it is done, and yet here we are in bodies of flesh in a temporal world with all its difficulties. The process of God accomplishing his powerful plan isn't over. But the important part is that it cannot be stopped, right? So there's no question that what God has promised is going to happen. There is no question that you as a Christian are going to come out of the grave. The resurrection will be applied to you at a moment in what we would call time, right? It is going to happen. It cannot be stopped. It is done. It is future, it's, you know, future history written down already for us because God cannot be stopped and he will have his way. And yet he is still accomplishing and unfolding this plan Uh, for the earth and for our lives. And so it can't be stopped. He has done these things. The victory is won. They will unfold according to his glorious purposes and his will. And so we should remind ourselves in the meantime, as we do live in bodies and flesh and live in a fallen world and deal with the fallen nature within ourselves, we need to remind ourselves that God is powerful. It is done. He has said it and it is true. And it's also, I think, a good reminder to remind ourselves that it's not hard for God. And here's what I mean by that. In every superhero movie, there comes a moment where the hero can barely overcome the problem, right? Because otherwise there's no drama in it. And this is why the bad guys in all the superhero movies are just like the superhero. They have the same powers. They have the same abilities because they're trying to show, oh, are they going to win? You know, and they're trying to build this drama. And there's always a moment where the hero can barely hold up the bridge or barely fight back the enemy. And, 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 so, and, they, and by the last skin of their teeth, they're able to like hoof it over and, and they win. Woo, that was a close one. It's not close for God. Uh, God's power isn't like that. It's immeasurably great. There is no contest. It's done. There's no question of whether God will do what he said he's going to do. And he says, yeah, I am going to do it. It's not even close. There's no question about it. And I have not only done it for myself and for my son, Jesus Christ, I'm doing it for you too. Verse 21, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, every title given, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And so we don't need to get bogged down on, well, what does he mean by each of these terms? Uh, The idea is in every category, in every place, in every time, Christ is above and Christ is in charge. It's done. Again, think of the superhero movie. There's always the bad guy who's just as strong as the good guy. And it's not close. There's no competition. He says far above. Name it. Name the category. Name the being. Name the time. Name the era. Name the place. It's not even close. Christ is far above all of them, and he is in charge. 
Now, this was seriously countercultural. Archaeologists have actually discovered a house in Ephesus that had this carved into the wall. Rome, the ruler of all, your power will never die. Right, so that's the culture that they're dealing with in Ephesus and elsewhere in the Roman Empire, where they're saying the kingdom that matters is Rome, and it's here, and it's forever, and its power is greater than any power. Caesar Augustus, he's God. He subjected the whole world under his feet. And now you have this uh, oozing eye, chained, like Jewish itinerant minister saying, actually, it's kind of hard for me to write because I've got a big heavy chain as I write this, but actually Jesus Christ is king. He's far above every ruler, every dominion, every power. It's his kingdom that matters, not this one. This kingdom's going to pass away. His kingdom will never end. And so he's, he's saying these ideas that are around you, these worldly ideas, they simply aren't true. There's revealed truth from heaven, from God himself. He is explaining to you who he is, what he's done, who he's called you to be. That is what's true. Rome was not the authority. Christ was. Caesar was not in charge. Christ was and is. Not only does that give us comfort since this ultimate authority that Paul is talking about is not just a God, he's our God. He is our friend. He is our savior. He is our father. He is our bridegroom. He calls himself these things to us. And so not just that, well, we know the more powerful God. He's like, no, you're my people. You're my possession. I'm gonna bring you into my own family. We're friends together. But this understanding of Christ as supreme, far above every ruler, obviously is meant to change our mindset about the life we live and the world that we live in, right? Because in the end, we have to remind ourselves that, okay, well, I know what's actually true. I know who's actually in charge. I know who the head honcho really is. And I know that I answer to him. I don't answer to human society, I don't answer to human rulers more than I answer to God, more than I answer to Jesus Christ. Now, listen, God has given the government for the good of society. Romans 13, very clear. We're not anarchists. The problem is human government will often operate in contradiction to God's truth and God's boundaries. And so while we are called to live as good citizens, Paul talks about that a lot in his letters, We have to always remind ourselves and have the perspective that, okay, but I answer to Jesus Christ. I belong to him. I live here, but I'm a stranger and sojourner passing through. And while I honor the government that God has put in place and recognize the authority that God has instilled in it, I answer to Christ. And I must honor his commands, his boundaries, his truths, even if the unbelieving world is trying to redefine what truth is redefine who God is, all of these different things. Paul's reference to the age to come reminds us again that we have a place in that age. Not only that it exists, but we have a place in it. And we go through the Bible and we realize that we kind of have a big place in it, a starting spot on the roster. As Christians, we've been invited not only to live in God's kingdom, but to join him in administrating it. And the Bible explains that the life we live now in these temporal bodies on this side of eternity helps to prepare for our experience in the coming age, right? And so looking through the teaching of Scripture, we can ask ourselves a couple of questions. Okay, there is a coming age. I have a part to play for it. I can prepare for it now. So the question is, all right, am I dressed for that coming age? Am I preparing for it? Am I saving up for it? Jesus said... You, you can save up for the coming age. 
You can lay ahead treasures in heaven where moth won't get it, rust won't get it, thieves can't break in. We prepare for vacations, right? You make plans and, and, and usually have a budget. Even if you don't have a budget in your regular life, most people budget for a vacation. They plan on spending a certain amount and, make, and, and execute that plan. You pack and you prepare and you get ready. And Jesus says, hey, listen, you right now can store up for your experience in eternity. You can adorn the robe that you'll be wearing in eternity right now as you walk with me and as you bear fruit, which I want to bear through your life because of my power and grace working through you. And so not only does an age to come exist, but we're invited to prepare for the age to come and to recognize that, okay, life is not all about this life. Life is about the next life. And this life matters. It's not that we just say, none of this matters. No, this life matters. God cares about this life. He cares about your experience in this life. He cares about the people in this life. He cares about the things you're involved in. But it's the next life that is going to calibrate our thinking and help us to have um, the proper mentality as we move through these mortal days. Verse 22 says, and he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body. This stands in bold defiance of Caesar's claim. I, Augustus, subjected the whole wide earth. No, you didn't. Christ did. And this has been the plan all along. Paul's quoting multiple Psalms in these verses, which, which revealed and laid out God's plan for, uh, for the world hundreds and hundreds of years before this letter is written. So Paul's saying, hey, remember like centuries and centuries ago when he wrote that? God put it all out for us to know. He's been revealing himself for thousands of years so we can know exactly who he is, exactly what he's doing, exactly how to identify his Messiah so that we can know how to join him in this plan to redeem the world. Caesar was a pretender to the throne. Caesar didn't subject the world. He's a liar, a killer, a thief. Christ is the real deal. He's the one that it's true about. We're told that God did this for the church, which is his body. This continues the incredible message that Paul has been getting out for the whole chapter. Do you know what God has done for you? Here we find that Christ is given as the head over us as a gift to us. And that we, as the church, are set apart to operate as the body of Christ. He in heaven, we on earth, working together by his power. We are terribly unqualified for the job of being the body of Christ. But the Lord says, that's okay. I'll build you up. I'll empower you. I'll lead you. I'll gift you. I'll help you. I'll protect you. I'll be with you. But you are my body now on the earth. In Augustus's divine deeds uh, scroll, he said this. I actually haven't been finishing uh, what he said. Here's the whole thing. He said, I subjected the whole wide earth to the rule of the Roman people. Did he really? Did he actually share his rule with the Roman people? Did he share his throne? He paid off his mercenaries. He, you know, he, he did some things like that, but he didn't share his throne. But the Lord Jesus does. He says, no, actually, I'm what is subjected under my feet is subjected under you, my church, because you are my feet. You are my body. In the millennium, we will govern with the Lord on the earth. He shares his kingdom with us. We're told we're going to judge angels. I don't know what that's about and what kind of disputes angels have, but we see glimpses of the millennium in the prophetic books of the Bible, and we see that it's a time of incredible activity 
Uh, all sorts of things are happening. Paul, Paul has us thinking about the age to come, right, and the power of God and has, how we operate as his body. And it's good to remind ourselves that that doesn't stop at the, at the end of this life. I mean, the coming age is not a time of inactivity. If you think we're going to be bored in heaven, we need to go back and just take a look at things. We're going to be really busy as God continues to energize us, and finally, we will be able to live as sinless, glorified people. You want to serve God now, and you're like, but man, Lord, I'm just so weak in the way that I follow you, and I, and I stumble, and I mess up. We're going to be in eternity still energized by God, but without any of the hindrances of weakness, or of sin, or of temptation, or any of these things. Then we're really going to be busy for the Lord. And so if this is already done, if all this power is really happening now, as Paul says, and if everything that is subjected under Christ is also subjected under his church since we're his body, then why do we experience so much difficulty and frustration and so often feel powerless in this life? Thomas Newfield writes, God's order of creation and salvation is still in the process of being realized in Christ. Such transformation is neither momentary nor without conflict and struggle. It's not that it might not happen. It's that it's still happening. And so Paul wrote, hoping the Ephesians would understand more of what is true, what is given to us, what is possible as we walk in the power of God. And as he does that sanctifying, growing work in and through us. And he says, the more you know, the stronger you're going to be, the greater your hope will be, the more effective you will be as you walk with God. The whole point is that Paul wants us to know the incredible potential and privilege we have as saved people in the church, but also that this great privilege comes with important countercultural right now responsibilities. And so in this salvation, full of blessings and benefits and power, we're called to complete participation with what God is doing, allowing Christ to be our head in every way, operating as his body, filled with his power, subordinate to his leading. Verse 23 continues, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So scholars call this the hardest phrase in the book. Some of them call it the hardest in all the New Testament when it comes to the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, but they explain that the Greek grammar is really vague and that Paul even used a bunch of rhyming words here. And so it's just kind of hard for them. Who is filling? Who's being filled? What is the filling? How is it done? There's debate. But the overall message is clear and obvious. It's this, the church is the special beneficiary of God's powerful filling and the church is implicated in the filling work of God, right? So there's all this filling happening. We get special filling and we're part of the filling process. And Paul will go on to show us how we live in this cooperative relationship with Christ Jesus, our head. He fills us and we fill up with him. God is filling us full. He is accomplishing his glorious sanctifying work by his power. And at the same time, we cooperate by using that energy, that power from God to, quote, build up the body of Christ, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So Paul says, man, the Lord is filling you and building up a church for himself. Also, you are filling and building up a church for the Lord. And you're like, wait, what's going on? But there's a cooperation. There is a participation because it's a relationship based off of of love one for another. The picture he uses is of a head and a body, the head with the central nervous system, 
with the directing power, the place of thought and understanding, the personality, the decision-making. But then those directives from the head are carried out by the body, which has life and strength and mobility. In this analogy, it's the head that matters, right? Obviously, if you have to lose one part of your body, is anybody going to pick the head tonight? I'm not going to. In fact, I read an article titled, I loved it, How Many Organs in the Body Could You Live Without? I found this very interesting. It said this, you can still have a fairly normal life without one of your lungs, a kidney, your spleen, appendix, gallbladder, adenoids, tonsils, plus some of your lymph nodes, the fibula bones from each leg and six of your ribs. If you allow yourself artificial replacements and medication, we can go further and remove your stomach, your colon, your pancreas, salivary glands, thyroid, bladder, your other kidney. Still not enough for you? Theoretically, surgeons could amputate all your limbs, remove your eyes, nose, ears, larynx, tongue, lower spine, and rectum. But there's no living without the head, right? You got to have your head. The head is all important. But guess what? Your head, you have a head. You want eyes and a kidney and salivary glands and lungs. They're super helpful and help you do stuff, right? And this is an amazing revelation. God wants to act clearly. He's a God of action. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. He wants to act all over the earth in every generation. He wants to express his powerful work on the earth on behalf of people. And he says, to accomplish that desire, I've decided to use you as my body on the earth, a representative group of people that act in my place on the earth with my power and my authority. It's amazing that God is willing to limit himself in this way. Of course, God the Son took on a body forever because of his great love for us. He is the God-man forever and ever. And now he goes further and says, you know what? I'm not going to stay on the earth and walk around as the God-man You know, Jesus could have done that and said, you know, I'm not ascending. I'm just going to hang out. I'm going to walk around and do all the Jesus, God, man stuff. I'm never going to die. I'm just going to go around and do all that stuff. That would be pretty effective, I'd imagine. He says, no, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to ascend and you are my body on the earth. I'll act through you. And so that you can be my body, I'm going to give you power and filling and gifting and all the directives you need. And so we, the assembly, the ecclesia, the church, we are called out to live as the body, energized by the mighty, immeasurable power of God, filled up with his fullness, and filling with him according to his purposes, filling the earth with his grace, filling up in our flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, filling our little spheres of influence with ministry and generosity and endurance and suffering and the gospel truth, filled full with his power. That has been given to us, not by a dead Caesar, but by a living Lord. Our hostile world refuses to believe in this Savior, despite proofs like the resurrection, the most provable fact in human history. The world settles for a building, uh, an empty memorial for a dead man who claimed to be great, Caesar Augustus. Augustus was decaying in the dirt. He was worm food, right? While they carved on the wall Uh, of his empty temple, how powerful he was, how great he was, how the Roman people should just be thankful for all that he did for himself. That's the world saying, yeah, this, look at, look at this great person. Look at this great king. Meanwhile, Christ Jesus is alive in heaven. And he says, I'm building you as my temple. I don't want an empty room with like a weird scroll carved on the walls in Latin and Greek. You're my temple. I'm going to live in you. I'm going to knit you together with other living temples so that you can be my body, not just in one place, not just in one city, but in every city, in every generation. 
And he says, my temple isn't full of dead men's bones. It's full of life and power. And so what a complete re-understanding of reality and culture for the Ephesians. This was a radical change in their understanding. And that's what the opening of this letter is all about. You Christians, do you realize what God has done? Do you realize what that means? Do you realize what is possible because of God's power given to you? It's Paul's hope that they would understand and that we would understand so that God's truth and power and goodness could be made known through us as well, the church, as the Lord energizes us today and now and builds us up according to his good purposes.